We all have bucket lists. As a lifelong sports fan, mine is full of tons of different sporting events and venues, from the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and beyond. However, my greatest bucket list item is something I want to share with the world and fans like me. What if you could attend a home college football game for all 130 and counting FBS programs? Seems crazy, right? Join me, your host, Bobby Wilson, as I take you along for the ride to see all the FBS venues and more. This is the TNT College Football Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the very next episode of the TNT College Football Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Wilson. Glad to be back on. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, Some more interesting topics to talk about today. Um, We got a lot of questions uh, that came in from some uh, listeners and on Twitter. So really, really excited to get into those. I always love getting those from, from everyone. Then the typical topics I will discuss, uh, I of course have to have to talk about UConn getting Alabama transfer offensive lineman, Dane Shore, um, just a huge, huge, huge upgrade for the Huskies program in the offensive line, which was one of the many places where they struggled last season, but they have done a great job fixing that with via the transfer portal. In my armchair quarterback segment, I will be breaking down the quarterbacks in the Mid-American Conference, the MAC. So uh, those that know and enjoy MACTION will know that there's always some really, really talented talented quarterbacks in the MAC, and this year is going to be no different. Then in my Coach's Corner segment, I'm going to discuss Dan Lanning, the new head coach at Oregon. Um, obviously a big-time job there, and He's not much young, not much older than me, so just an interesting, interesting hire there. His rise, when I did research on him, his rise is pretty amazing. But I'll get to that at the end of the show. I'm gonna dive start by diving into some of the questions I got. Um, one being uh, from one, of, of course, I have a huge following of UConn fans with my partnership through Sidelines UConn. I've gained just a tremendous amount of support from Husky Nation and. I've become a big fan myself, but one of the huge, one of the questions that I've had, and I know a lot of other people have, um, how do you feel about the defensive front? Um, Is there enough there to have a strong rotation? Now, I will say that I am surprised that they didn't address the defensive line a little more in the transfer portal than what they did. Uh, Obviously, losing Travis Jones, um, to the NFL draft, to the Baltimore Ravens selecting him in the, I believe it was the third round, maybe it was the fourth round, it was the fourth round, either either way, uh, just a huge, huge hole. UConn last year had 12 sacks as a team, and TJ accounted for over a quarter of those. He had four and a, four and a half of the 12, so I mean, just, just a huge, huge amount there that you're losing from one guy. Um that I mean, you lose that type of production and that type of talent, you, you're going to struggle, especially when it was your main guy. Now, one guy who did have success last year, and it did have a lot to do with TJ being on the line as well, um, was uh, Kevon Jones, who himself had 60 tackles. He had two sacks. 
Um, so he is a huge, huge piece of that rotation um, coming back. Probably going to be the number one guy, honestly, um, when it, when it's all said and done. Um, but again, I was a little, little surprised that they didn't hit hit the transfer portal a little harder when it came to um, the defensive line. Um, one guy they did get who I feel is going to really help um, is Old Dominion transfer Sequoia McDuffie. Um, he he had some some uh, decent games at Old Dominion, and I feel like he's going to be able to step in um, to the, to the UConn uh, defensive line and really be able to to uh, succeed and do some things. Uh, I'm a little more concerned with uh, with the secondary uh, because that was a huge problem last year. They gave up so many big plays through the air. So I'm a little more concerned with that heading into the season. The linebacking core is going to be tremendous. I mean, Jackson Mitchell was leading the nation in tackles for most of the season. They added uh, Marquez Bembry from Kentucky, just an absolute impact transfer that they got. Um, they also got uh, a young man who transferred in Michigan State via Texas Tech, who is going to be huge for them too. So, I mean, I think the starting three when it comes to the linebacker position are – as solid as it can get really for for UConn at, at this state um, so I mean I, I think they're gonna be they're gonna be in really good shape there and I feel like they're gonna be blitzing a lot when it comes to that um, so that could also help with the defensive line rotation but again like I said I I, I am a little I am a little uh, perplexed on why they didn't add more in the portal when it comes to that because I mean obviously the offensive line was probably the biggest weakness on the team and they did and they and one of those guys is now on an NFL roster it um, just the rest of the line was very poor um, but they added a ton of guys in the portal but where I'm going with that is obviously this coaching staff has made it a point to uh, that the trenches winning in the trenches matters and they're they're fixing that on offensive line now hopefully that defensive line will do the same um and hopefully hopefully some of those those guys that were there last year and learned and went through the ropes can step up and do some things um with tj now gone so hopefully there's that part too so the the next question uh dealt with deals with wisconsin and and this is something I completely agree with. Um, obviously, there's a large amount of quarterbacks who transferred. And why wasn't Wisconsin one of those teams um, looking for a quarterback? Just because uh, Graham Mertz has not lived up to his high potential from uh, his recruiting. Um, obviously, he came in as a highly touted quarterback. Uh, probably, I would have to guess. I, I should have done some research into this, but I would have to guess that he's probably the highest ranked quarterback Wisconsin's ever got. If not, he's got to be up there. Um, but 
I'm I'm a firm believer that Wisconsin is consistent quarterback play away from being a real contender, not only in the Big Ten, but nationally, because, I mean, their running game is out of this world. Um, the offensive line, I mean, you know every year Wisconsin's offensive line is going to be amazing, and it just, Graham Mertz just has to be comp, just competent when it comes when it comes to how well their offensive line is going to be. And and it's, it, it's bizarre just how poorly he has played. I went and saw them play in person last year against Army, and, and he struggled in that game to, to really make some things happen. I mean, and it's nothing against Army because Army is a very good team. But when you're a Big Ten P5 offense, you should be able to do some things against an undersized Army defense. And they he, he did have a very nice long run for a touchdown, but – he should have been able to complete more passes than what he did. And in, in that game in particular that I was at, I really noticed some things that just really were head-scratching to me. So I kind of agree with this question on why Wisconsin wasn't more active in the transfer portal when it comes to getting a quarterback. And who knows, maybe they were. Maybe they tried and they just – the guys – maybe they tried to get a certain guy or two and those guys didn't come and – it didn't work out, but I, I mean, I do agree that that they need they need to figure that position out because, like I said, I mean, they're right there. I mean, there's they're going to compete in the West no matter what, but it can't just be competing for West Division titles. You have to be competing for Big Ten titles. You have to be up there competing with Michigan and Ohio State and Michigan State and Penn State because I think if you I think whoever wins the East, which lately it's Ohio State, obviously Michigan did last year, but predominantly it's been Ohio State. Um, I, I feel like the list of those other three, Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State, would have won the West in almost any other given year. So that's a, that's a whole other topic in itself for the Big Ten, but the West has to get better. But it comes down to the likes of Wisconsin getting better and better quarterback play. Another question I'm going to be talking about in a little bit is Nebraska. There, there's that in Minnesota. I mean, if they're able to get good quarterback play from Tanner Morgan, they could they could be in the same boat, really becoming a, a real contender, not just in the Big Ten West, but in the Big Ten as a whole because you have Mo Ibrahim back. So there's, I mean, I feel like the top four in the West of Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, you just need competent quarterback play. Whoever gets it is going to be in really good shape. Then Nebraska might finally have a quarterback in Casey Thompson, but they have so many other issues. Can they put it all together is, is the question. So, I mean, I think whoever gets the best quarterback play out of those four programs is going to be the one left standing in the West. And and I personally think Graham Mertz has the highest ceiling of those guys, but can he put it together? That's the question. And and like I said, with with the person who asked this question, I mean, I I I agree that that they should have should have been more aggressive in the portal. Uh, trying to get a guy. Um, 
maybe even the likes of Adrian Martinez, somebody like that who gives you the running passing ability. Um, I'm very, very high on him going to Kansas State because now he's going to have a tremendous running back, somebody who I think is the best running back in the country in Deuce Vaughn. Well, the young man they have at Wisconsin isn't too shabby himself either. So you, you pair that together and you could have something special. But it is what it is. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. We'll see if them rolling the dice with Graham Mertz again pays off for them. The next question, what percent chance does Georgia have to repeat as national champions? Now, with that being said, I, I, I do believe Georgia's going to go undefeated. I mean, their, their schedule is pretty soft, realistically, from the standpoint of from like a national stage. I mean, they open up the year and that non-conference game against Oregon in Atlanta. I mean, that's the toughest game on their schedule probably. Um, if they win that, I, I don't know if they lose um, because and – I, and I do believe they'll win that game. I really do. I, I think they're, they're the better team. Uh, they have the better quarterback. I mean, they just – I know they have to replace a lot on defense, but there's, there's plenty there. Let's just say that. But – I mean, you look at the after they play Oregon, they host Samford, who Samford gave Florida a heck of a run. But I mean, jo Florida and Georgia are on two different stratospheres right now. Then week three is one of their tougher games on their schedule. They go to South Carolina. So, I mean, that's going to be a test. And South Carolina has, has the potential to pull that upset with the new quarterback play that they're going to have and just the excitement around that program. Then you got Kent state at Missouri. I don't see that being a hiccup. I mean, I don't feel like Missouri's going to be that great. Then they host Auburn. I don't think Auburn's going to be very good. They host Vanderbilt. Then they play Florida in Jacksonville. I think they run away with that one again. They host Tennessee. Tennessee's one of those teams who could give them a run, but I don't know if they can do it in Athens, um, but Tennessee's going to be good. So there's a potential opportunity at Mississippi State. Uh, I mean, you're going on the road in the SEC, so it's not easy to win. But, I mean, Georgia's definitely better than Mississippi State, especially at this point. But the second to last week of the season is probably their toughest or second toughest, depending on how you look at South Carolina compared to Kentucky. But they go to Kentucky. Um, last year that game was hyped up tremendously, and Kentucky just – wasn't on Georgia's level. We found that out. But this year, Kentucky returns a lot. They have a really, really good quarterback themselves. So I think that Kentucky game is one where you could maybe see them hic a hiccup there. Then, of course, the end of the year against Georgia Tech, they should absolutely run away with that game. But I think there's only re there's really only two road games that you look at and you're just like – Maybe that's it with it being at South Carolina and at Kentucky. Um, and then they host Tennessee. They host Auburn. Of course, they got Florida in the neutral site and then Oregon in the neutral site, which it's not really a neutral site. It's in Atlanta, for goodness sake. So with all that being said, I, I think it's – I'm not going to say it's a foregone conclusion that they go undefeated because I would never say that. You have to play the games. You have to play the games out. But 
I would probably say it's a 70-75% chance that they go undefeated going into the SEC championship game where I think they'll play Alabama and I think they will lose that game. But I still believe, I believe Alabama and Georgia will both go into the SEC title game undefeated, which in that case, I think both of them make the playoff. So with that said, with them making the playoff, I mean, you have to give them real a realistic chance to repeat then. I mean, do I think they'll repeat? I don't because I think it's Alabama and Ohio State and kind of everybody else. I do think Georgia is, I think the top tier is Alabama and Ohio State. And then I think Georgia is just a tier by themselves below them. Um, but they're close. But with what Alabama and Ohio State have coming back and the new pieces that Alabama is adding, it's just out of this world. Um, I, I, I feel like... I mean, I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb by saying that, but I do feel like Georgia is the third best team, and I don't think that there's a comparison between the third best team and whoever you would put at four all the way down. Now, I think for four, you could list a number of teams, and I wouldn't think you're crazy to do that. Um, Clemson, Texas A&M, Michigan, Utah, I mean, you could probably throw Notre Dame in there, Oklahoma State, maybe Oklahoma, maybe Baylor. You could throw in a lot of different names there, and and it's not you're not insane to do that. But I do feel like there's a definitive top three. I think you can go one, two, either way, whichever way you want to go with that. That's kind of kind of a toss up. But I do feel like Georgia's number three locked in right there. So, I mean, if you're the third best team coming into the season, I do feel like you have to give them a realistic chance then to repeat. I mean, I, I, I would, I mean, is it 25%? Is it 30, 35%? Somewhere, uh, how about we go in the middle of that and say a third, say 33.3%, let's go there. I think. So, I mean, you got to give them a, oh, a realistic chance. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like 10%. I wouldn't, I, 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 I would think if you put somebody at 10%, you're kind of saying that it would be a shock, which it wouldn't be a shock if Georgia repeated as national champions. So that's, that's how I feel about that. Um, <clears throat> next question, um, dealing with Florida state and just the, just the coaching mistakes that they've made and the blunders that they've made in hiring. Um, the, 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 one of the questions was, are they bankrupt yet from firing all their coaches? That's, that's a great question. Um, but I'm not smart enough to know that answer, but it, it certainly would seem that way with how many coaches they are currently paying that are not on their actual staff. Um, but, but more so the question has to deal with, has Norvell shown anything that gives you optimism that they can be, that they can take the next step and get to the next level? Now, I do feel like the way that they ended the season last year, uh, I have to give them some credit because it, it, it could really have spiraled just out of control and it could have been really, really bad. So, I mean, I do have to give him some credit there that he was able to 
piece that together after starting 0-4 with one of those losses being to FCS Jacksonville State. They were able to win three games in a row, beating Syracuse, then winning at North Carolina, which that one surprised me. And then, of course, they beat UMass. And then they turned around and lost at Clemson. They lost to NC State. Those aren't bad losses at all, especially with how good both of those teams are and were last year. Then they beat Miami and won at Boston College. So, I mean, <clears throat> like they had four ACC wins last year. Uh, went 5-7 and seven overall, but... I mean, I, I do think that there's optimism that you can have finishing the year five and three in your last eight games, especially with how poorly you started the season. So I do feel like there's optimism there, and uh, that they can that they can take something from that. I do feel like Jordan Travis, their quarterback, is a very good piece to build around. Their running back Trey Benson, also a good piece. Uh, Makai Pittman at receiver is another good piece. I mean, they have some guys that, that can do some things. And defensively, you know they're going to have talent. They always have talent on that side of the ball. Um, you just – can their offense take the next step? Um, and then it, it falls on Jordan Travis's shoulders at quarterback. Um, you look at their schedule this year. They open up against Duquesne on, in week zero. So, I mean, they have to – obviously have to win that game. They're, Duquesne's obviously not at the level of Jacksonville State when it comes to the FCS. Obviously, Jacksonville State's about to be an FBS team in 2023 in Conference USA. But then they turn around, they play LSU in New Orleans. Uh, I don't like their chances in that game. Obviously, Brian Kelly's first game, um, the game's in New Orleans. I mean, that, that, that's going to be a tough one. <clears throat> then they go to Louisville, host Boston College, host Wake, Go to NC State and host Clemson. I think those first five ACC games are going to be huge when it comes to the trajectory of their season. I mean, I think going to Louisville, Louisville is going to be very good in my opinion. Malik Cunningham is tremendous. Then you host Boston College, who I'm high on. Phil Dracovich, I think, is a really, really good quarterback himself. Then Wake Forest. and. With uh, Hartman at quarterback, you got another really good quarterback. Then you go to NC State. NC State's one of the darlings heading into this season that people are loving. Um, then, of course, Clemson. And, so, and then to end the year, the last five games, you get Georgia Tech at Miami, at Syracuse, Louisiana, and then Florida. So, I mean, I think you obviously have to beat Georgia Tech. I think Miami's obviously going to be much improved. Syracuse... I think by that point in the year, Syracuse could be in a spiral. But then ending the year against Louisiana and Florida, yeah, you got two home games, but those aren't easy home games. I mean, Louisiana is very, very good. And Florida's your your big-time rival. So, I mean, I think there is definitely a scenario where they do not go bowling again, which I think if that happens again, Norvell would be fired which then turns into they're having to do this whole thing all over again. They're paying another coach, so maybe they don't fire him because they can't afford to pay him without him being there. So I think uh, if you ask me, I mean, he's one of, the, one of the number one guys on the hot seat, that's for sure. Now the next question is, I, I, I think this is a great question, by the way. It, it's about Nebraska and the state of their program. Um, there's obviously seven, 
several people, several different podcasts, and several different media members that they've mentioned society and how college football has changed, and it's had a negative impact on Nebraska. Uh, I mean, I think I don't think there's in Nebraska will never reach the heights that they've that they were and population shifts throughout the the country in different areas what and then the 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 real question went to what is Nebraska's blueprint for success and how should Nebraska's head coach run the program the the short answer for me is I don't think Nebraska can ever be what they were before I just don't think that they can be that I don't feel like it's enough there's enough of a draw for them to have the success that they had in the past. I, I don't I just don't feel like there's enough blue chip guys that are going to go to the the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, and just be like, Yeah, I want to play here when I could go play in the SEC or go to USC in LA or Miami or like Places like that obviously have a much better draw because of everything that's there. Um, so I just don't. So <clears throat> I guess I'll start it with with that. That I don't think Nebraska can be can ever be what they were. Um, now, with that being said, I do feel I'm a firm believer, as a former college basketball coach myself, I, I'm a firm believer that you can win anywhere. I, I, I firmly believe that because my last coaching stop was at a small division three school in central Illinois in the middle of nowhere. I shouldn't say in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's between two pretty good sized cities in Peoria and Bloomington, Illinois, but <clears throat> it, it, the resources were terrible the financial resources and then the facilities and everything was just terrible. But we won a ton of games because we got kids that fit our system and did what we wanted them to do and just good kids and they played hard. And granted, Illinois has a great base to pull players from, so that helps too. So looking at it from from the perspective that I have from coaching is – I feel like Nebraska doesn't need to look much further than, and I know Nebraska fans are not going to want to hear this, but I think Nebraska doesn't have to look much further than the University of Iowa and the blueprint that they've created, the University of Wisconsin and what they've created, the University of Minnesota and what they've created. You have to have an identity, and and I think we can all agree that Nebraska doesn't have an identity. And in the Big Ten... And in the Big Ten West, you can even throw Purdue in there at this point with kind of what they've done as a program, especially being in the Big Ten West. You have to, like I said, you have to have an identity. And what does Nebraska want their identity to be? I mean, Iowa and Wisconsin have lunch pail mentalities and guys that just play the right way, do the right thing. And I I feel like that's almost the way that Nebraska has to look at it. 
because the only other thing that you could could do is you just have to win you would then have to win every recruiting battle for the top guys in your region like the number one player from nebraska the state of nebraska last year i believe he's going to the university of oregon so i mean in in that situation you have to get that kid if you're going to be successful if you're going to get the top guys because that's how you're then going to become the ohio state or michigan in the big 10 and michigan state and penn state because those teams are pulling in better players. That's the same type of situation then that Nebraska would have to do. And I just feel there's no identity. There's just a lack of, I mean, we all know the support is there from the fan base. I mean, they've sold out however many consecutive games and they haven't been good. I mean, just think of that. Um, I know I've said many times that Scott Frost has to be on his last straw. If they don't go to a bowl game this year, I don't think there's any circumstance where they can keep him or justify keeping him. Um, so, <clears throat> again, I know Nebraska fans don't want to hear it, but I think you just need to look right at your fellow counterparts that you're competing against week in, week out, day to day for recruits even. Look at Iowa. Look at Wisconsin. Look at Minnesota. Look at what they've done. And you almost kind of have to implement that. Um, don't... You, that's the only way that I really can see them having the success that they can have is you got to turn into a running football team and just ground and pound and do and do your best that way because I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get the skill guys you would need to just open it up and just go crazy with it. I just don't feel like those type of guys are going to go to Lincoln, Nebraska. That's just my opinion. Um, Again, I, I loved that question because I thought that there was some really good really good insight that can come from that. Then the final question I got deals with the, something I'm super excited about. Um, is there w- with all the new realignment and everything, what are some new college football rivalries that we could see formed? Um, and, and, and I'm going to look at it from a predominantly G5 landscape because I feel like that's where a good amount of my knowledge is. But uh, there, there's also some other opportunities there. I think Cincinnati and West Virginia can come become a rivalry in the Big 12. Now, I do believe West Virginia is going to shift to maybe, say, the ACC in the future. But I feel like with the proximity of those two schools in that conference, I feel like that's just going to become a natural rivalry, I think. And then, I mean, you could throw Houston in there with the, with uh, Baylor and <clears throat> the likes that they'll be playing in the state of Texas. So, I mean, you could throw that in there. But now I'm going to look at it from the G5 standpoint. Um, in the New Look, New Look American Conference, you're going to have UTSA, SMU, and North Texas. So I feel like those three there, you got that Texas connection with those three. I feel like there can be, between the three, there can become some rivalries there. I think UTSA and SMU are both at pretty good points in the history of their football programs where where they can really, really do some damage against each other and, and uh, have some exciting football games. Um, I think that will be very very interesting to see 
Um, another one I can see coming in the American is uh, a southern rivalry from UAB and Memphis. I think those two schools aren't very far apart at all. They they recruit the same players, same type of players. They've had good success at the levels that they're at. So I think that naturally becomes a rivalry. <clears throat> One that could also happen in the American I can see is uh, South Florida and Florida Atlantic. Just naturally with UCF heading to the Big 12, FAU taking their place, I think that naturally just becomes a rivalry there, uh, with, especially with the two schools' proximity to each other. Um, one I look at in the Sun Belt West coming is Louisiana and Southern Miss. They're they're going to be right by each other. Um, two good programs. Southern Miss is drastically on the rise. Um, and Louisiana <clears throat> has one of the longest streaks in college football right now. But that they've done such a tremendous job there. And then I just look at the, sun, the new Sun Belt East in general. I mean, the likes of App State, Coastal Carolina, Marshall, Georgia State, JMU, Old Dominion, and Georgia Southern. I mean, App State and Georgia Southern have one of the best rivalries that there is. Um, but I look at James Madison and Coastal Carolina have a history from their uh, FCS days. Um, App State and Marshall have a tremendous history and a tremendous rivalry. Um, so you can look at uh, back from the FCS days that they've had. I mean, Georgia State and Georgia Southern have become a big rival since they've both joined the Sun Belt. But one that really, really intrigues me is uh, JMU and Old Dominion. And uh, Old Dominion being on more on the coast, the beach, bigger city in Virginia Beach, um, and JMU being in Harrisonburg, in the mountains, more of a rural area. So you got those conflicting lifestyles, I guess you can say. But JMU's history is out of this world. I mean, they've had such tremendous success at the FCS level. Um, and I think Old Dominion is going to raise their level to where it needs to be to compete in the Sun Belt. So, I, I mean, I think that can become a huge rivalry in the state of Virginia between those two. So, I mean, just look, looking at the – I just think the entirety of the Sun Belt East in a, as a whole, I mean, you, you have so – like I said, you have so much history going back to FCS days between some of these programs. But then you have – I just feel like you're naturally going to have rivalries just because – these these teams are going to be really good. I mean, JMU is going to be really good, and, and their trajectory is amazing. Georgia State's much improved, and then the top three of App State, Coastal, and Marshall. I mean, those are three of the best G five teams in the country. So, I, I love that question because I obviously I can talk about the G five schools all day long. The likes, I mean, everybody who listens knows how much I love Coastal Carolina. And just uh, what that all brings to the table. So now that I've taken about 35 minutes, answered some great questions again. Thank you guys so much for those. I love getting those, love talking about all this. But I have to now go into talking about the University of Connecticut and UConn football and what they've done, adding so many, 
so many great transfers that are going to just mean everything to this program. But the transfer that they just added Sunday night is an absolute game changer for not only this coming season, but for the future of this football program. UConn landed Alabama transfer offensive lineman Dane Shore, who, if he would have come to UConn as a high school player, would have been the second-ranked recruit in the history of UConn football. Just just a tremendous get by Jim Moore and the staff. Um, to get somebody who, who had you could name the offer coming out of high school and to go to the university of Alabama. Now I know, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen, uh, Dane's history and, uh, some of the issues he's dealt with himself and, uh, just the mental side of things when it comes to just being a human being, but being in sports, um, is a whole nother thing. And then you go to the university of Alabama and I can only, I can't even imagine what, well, what that entails from a psychological standpoint, let alone the physical playing football standpoint, but what it has to take out of you mentally to be at that institution and a part of that football program and what it means to put that jersey on. And the fan base can obviously be very difficult. So I feel him going to UConn, the the many UConn supporters I have are just so, so happy, and they couldn't be happier for this. But even if things do go wrong, I know that the UConn fans are going to treat him right in the way that the, the way they're supposed to because these are very, very passionate fans, but they're good human beings. I mean, you always have bad apples in every fan base. But just to be able to get... Uh, a, a player at his level to live up to his pedigree as a Alabama football player at the University of Connecticut just would take the offensive line to another level. I mean, I, like I said earlier when I was answering some of those questions, like UConn's offensive line last year was horrendous. And they had an NFL, a now NFL offensive lineman on the roster. It was it, it just it was bad, and they've done a tremendous job adding a, mi a mini number of guys from the portal to the offensive line. But to get this is just icing on the cake. And like I said, if he would have came in as a high school, right out of high school, he would have been the second ranked recruit in the history of UConn football. So just a huge deal there. I, I can't stress it enough, and I will continue as as everybody who follows the podcast Twitter account at TNT College Foot One knows I will continue to be a proponent and believer and I'm a firm believer that UConn's P five invite is coming. It's only a matter of time. There's way too much to offer from this athletic department and the all the the winning programs, the national championships that come with the University of UConn the facilities, the fan bases, the money that's involved. It's only a matter of time. Um, but now I'm going to go into my armchair quarterback segment where I'm going to be breaking down the Mid-American, the MAC, MACTION for uh, the quarterbacks, 12 teams, obviously. There's plenty of new faces, um, but the returning guys at the top, 
at least the top five or six returning guys um, are guys you're very confident in. And, and I have to go, uh, of course, I'll go from the bottom up. But 12, I'm going with Ball State's John Paddock. Uh, Ball State went to a bowl game last year. Every team in the MAC West was bowl eligible and went to a bowl game last year. Tremendous feat by the MAC West. But John Paddock is going to take over this year. He's a he's small, um, to say the least, about five eleven and one hundred and seventy pounds. I mean, he's so I feel like that's going to be an issue. Looking at some of his film from previous spring games, I mean, I think <clears throat> the short and intermediate game is his is his niche. Um, so a lot of the, you're not going to see a lot of big plays from him throwing the football, um, unless the receivers break it or the running backs, wherever it may be. But, um, I put him at the, at the bottom of the list, uh, just because he has a lot to prove the next guy up. And, and I hate putting this program, this low on the list, because I think this program uh, has a very, very, very legitimate chance to win the Mac West, but it's because of losing Caleb Ellaby and the two young men that are going to vie for the job um, just don't have experience. There's <coughs> Jack Salapak and uh, Stone Holenback, who's another Alabama transfer, but that's at Western Michigan. So I have Western Michigan at number 11. I do feel Jack Solopec is going to win the job. I think he just has a leg up from being in the system. He played a little bit last year. He's been there. But Stone Holenbeck, the Alabama transfer coming in, you you have to give him an opportunity. I know his spring wasn't the greatest, but it was because looking from the spring game perspective, it was because he – he was with the third or fourth string guys, so he, he couldn't really look as good, I guess you could say. But I'm going to go with Solopec just because he's played a little bit in the system. But they got big shoes to fill um, from Caleb Ellaby. <clears throat> Number 10, speaking of big shoes to fill, uh, Colin Shalil from Kent State. Um, just He brings to the table... He's a good dual threat quarterback with a strong arm. So I, I do feel like he has the potential to really move up this list as the season goes. But just like entering the season, I'm going to put him here at the 10 spot just because uh, he, he hasn't played really. Not, not a lot at least. But again, he has huge shoes to fill himself um, when it comes to... Um, we they lose Dustin Crum, which is he's been the heart and soul of that program for three or four years now. Um, so I mean it, it it's going to be difficult for him, but I do feel like he has the physical tools to be successful. At number nine, I went Matt Myers at Buffalo. He played in ten games last year for the Bulls, um, but they also have a transfer back or coming in. Cole Schneider from Rutgers, who is definitely going to fight for that job. But Matt Myers threw for 703 yards, four touchdowns. He had four rushing touchdowns last year. So he played um, some significant time last year. So 
that's why I put him a little higher on this list compared to the other three newcomers just because he's had time and he's been there and, and done that a little bit. And number eight is a returner, uh, Curtis Rourke from Ohio. Ohio was very disappointing last year, um, but they had a coaching change right before the season. Um, he threw for just under 2,000 yards and 11 touchdowns. Um, his stats definitely are going to need to be better if the Bobcats are going to have a better season than they did last year. Um, next up, number seven from Eastern Michigan, Taylor Powell, who is transferring in from Troy. Last year at Troy, he had 1,251 yards and seven touchdowns. I, I feel like he's going to be able to step in there. He's got some really good skill players like uh, Bedoin coming back. I saw the, him in person last year. I mean, they, that's a guy who just doesn't stop working. There are some skill pieces there, but just the roster in general took a huge hit via the portal. Losing Ben Bryan at quarterback hurts a ton because if they had him back, he'd be one of the best quarterbacks in the MAC. I mean, I, I think – I personally think Ben Bryant should be the starter at Cincinnati this year. I don't know if he will, but uh, that's just my opinion. But I think Taylor Powell can come in and and at least be a more than competent quarterback in the MAC. Uh, number six uh, is somebody who I really think is going to take off with the coaching change that occurred at his school, and that's DJ Irons at Akron. Last year, he he threw for. Almost 1,000 yards and eight touchdowns. I think he has tremendous big play ability in Akron's new offense with Joe Moorhead at, as the head coach. Um, he's a big 6'6 quarterback who's got a – like I said, he's got a, a really strong arm, and I think he's going to be able to make some really big plays there. And that's why I have him ranked so high because I really feel like he could take off this year. I, I think Akron could do some things in the MAC this year, especially in the East. Um the East obviously is open. It, the Mac West is extremely difficult, but the East is open, um, and I think Akron's flying under the radar right now. But they got a great head coach. They've done tremendous in the transfer portal, and I think that they're uh, they're on the up and up. At number five, I think is somebody who could could also surprise some people, and I think it's going to be surprising based on the lack of success from the program recently. But uh, Bowling Green quarterback Mac McDonald threw for over 2,500 yards last year, 12 touchdowns, four rushing touchdowns. They had that huge win at Minnesota. Um, can can they build off that? I mean, I, I like I said, they're in the MAC East. It's open. They could do some things there. Um, and he, he's going to have a lot to say about that. I mean, he could throw for 3,000 yards this year. And if he does that, I think Bowling Green wins a couple more games. Uh, number four, now I think the top four are set themselves apart from everyone else, from the rest of the guys in the league. And I'm going to go number four, Daniel Richardson from Central Michigan. Um, he threw for over two, over 2,500 yards. He had 24 passing touchdowns. Now losing Khalil Pimpleton, his number one wide receiver, is huge. And I think his numbers will take will possibly take a little bit of a hit. But they have Lou Nichols, one of the best running backs in college football. Um, had the most rushing yards last year in college football. So I, mean, I think I think that sets up really well in the passing game when you have a running back who's out of this world. So his numbers, I think, are, could still be good, but you lose your number one receiver. At number three, I go Daquan Finn from Toledo. 
And Toledo, I think, has the highest ceiling of any program in the MAC. And Finn is a good reason why. Now they have pieces galore on offense. They always do. Uh, he threw for over 2,000 yards, 18 touchdowns, only two interceptions, had over 500 yards rushing and nine rushing touchdowns. So this is a real dual threat quarterback throwing the fantastic running back that they have. And some really good skilled players on the outside at receiver. This Toledo offense could could take off, and it could remind a lot of people of those Toledo teams of old and how great they were. And I really feel like he's a huge, huge piece in that. Uh, number two, I go Brett Gabbert from Miami, Ohio. Um, he's got tremendous numbers coming back. Almost 2,700 yards passing and 26 touchdowns. Um, just a real, real steady guy. And I think his numbers are going to be tremendous this year. 3,000 yards, 30 touchdowns. I mean, he's going to do really well, especially playing in the MAC East and some of those poorest defenses he's going to play against in a week-to-week -week basis. But number one, I have to go with Rocky Lombardi from Northern Illinois. Um, there was a reason why he was a starter in the Big Ten at Michigan State. And he proved that last year for NIU. Now, his numbers passing-wise weren't like out of this world, but he had basically 2,600 yards passing and 15 touchdowns, but he had nine rushing touchdowns. And we know, we all know how great the rushing attack at NIU was last year. It was one of the best in the country. They lose Ducker at running back to Memphis, so that's going to be that's going to hurt him a little bit. But Rocky Lombardi's leadership alone makes him the number one guy in this conference. Just because if NIU didn't have him, I don't know where they would be because they were so so young last year. But they but with his leadership and his ability, he really took them over the hump last year and turned them into the MAC champions. So that's my breakdown of the MAC quarterbacks in the armchair quarterback segment. And to conclude the show now, I'm going to go into the coach's corner segment talking about Dan Lanning, the new head coach at the University of Oregon. He's obviously coming in from a tremendous uh, job well done as Georgia's defensive coordinator coming off a national title and how – Fitting is it that his very first game as a head coach is going to be against the University of Georgia in Atlanta. So, um, like I said, he's not much older than me. So that that kind of uh, comes at you fast there for myself. But he, just in 2010, he was a high school position coach. So, I mean, that just tells you how quickly he has risen through the ranks being a grad assistant at Pittsburgh, Arizona State, at Alabama, um, then becoming a linebacker coach, recruiting coordinator at Memphis, then became the outside linebacker coach at Georgia, and then right after that, in 2019, he became the defensive coordinator at Georgia and just has risen tremendously um, through the ranks. He, I mean, he's won two national titles already. 2015, he won one with Alabama. And then just last year, he wins it with Georgia as a defensive coordinator. So, I mean, you're getting a young guy. He's only 36 and just kind of a rising star in the profession. But as I do in this segment, I go back and look at the previous season. Um, Oregon was 10-4 and four last year. They had some amazing wins. 
Um, they beat a very, very good Fresno State team by seven to open the year, but obviously their marquee win last year was at Ohio State. Um, just, I mean, you go to Ohio State and you win. I, I remember watching that game and just blown away with how well they played. They controlled that game, really. Beat Stony Brook, beat Arizona. Then they might have had one of the worst losses of the season last year, losing at Stanford in overtime. Um, that Stanford team last year was awful, uh, to put it lightly, and they lost that game. And that kind of took them out of the national spotlight and contention there. They beat Cal, beat UCLA, beat Colorado, beat Washington, beat Washington State. Then the regular season night game, they go to Utah and just get destroyed. Um, there's a terrible performance there. Um, turn around the next week, they beat a good Oregon State team, and that gets them the Pac-12 North title. Then they go up against Utah again um, and get destroyed on national television again. They go to the Alamo Bowl, lose to Oklahoma. They had so many guys opt out of that game. Um, so I, I won't put it past him. Uh, I, I, I kind of put a pass on that one. But, I mean, they still won 10 games. They won the Pac-12 North. They are a heavy favorite in the Pac-12 North again this year, I will say. Um, just kind of looking at it. You look at their schedule this year. I've already said it. Um, they open up the year against Georgia in Atlanta. I think that's obviously a very difficult game. Then they conclude their non-conference with Eastern Washington and then BYU. And BYU is going to be unbelievably talented. So that is a heck of a test for BYU going to Eugene, but it's a heck of a test for Oregon too. Um, then in the conference slate, they go to Washington State, host Stanford, go to Arizona, host UCLA, go to Cal, go to Colorado, and then they host Washington and Utah, then they go to Oregon State. So they get a good break not playing some of the upper echelon teams in the Pac-12 South uh, besides UCLA. Um, then they get Washington and Utah at home. Um, they have to go to Oregon State, but a very favorable Pac-12 draw. But it's going to come down to their performance against Georgia and BYU. I mean, how they look in those games there is going to make all the difference. Um, <clears throat> and if you look at them recruiting-wise, Dan Lanning was still able to have the number one recruiting class in the Pac-12. And 16th overall too so a great job recruiting by him uh, obviously Oregon has obviously has some of the best facilities in the world with their Nike stuff I think their NIL just the NIL ability that they're going to have in the future is going to be out of this world um, but it's some of the transfers you look at um, getting they <laughs> I, I'm surprised of how many guys in the Pac-12 transferred to other schools in the Pac-12. Uh, that, to me, is head-scratching why you would transfer some to another school in your conference. But obviously the number one transfer that everybody's talking about is Bo Nix. Coming from Auburn um, to Oregon, I mean, obviously that's a huge move across the country. Completely different playing styles, too, when you really think about it. But... I've never really been a fan of Bo Nix as a quarterback, but I think he could be in a in a very good situation at Oregon. 
Um, obviously, that first game against Georgia is where where he's going to make his make his money. Let's just say, um, just because that that's going to make or break their season. I mean, if they win that game, it could propel them into a stratosphere where the Pac-12 might have another horse in the race besides Utah or USC. Um, not that I don't believe USC is there, but I think others do. But I think if Oregon's able to win that game, I think that that, that, that could propel them into something amazing. So it's going to come down to that. Now, Dan Lanning's never been a head coach. He's 36 years old, and you're giving him the reins to one of the, well, just call it what it is, but one of the pre premier programs in college football. I mean, this Oregon program won a national title not that long ago, if we're being honest. So, I mean, this is, and with the NIL opportunities that are going to be there because of Nike, um, I, I don't think there's any way you can't have success. And if you don't, you obviously will be fired quickly because Oregon is not going to take lightly to losing. So I think I think they hired somebody that's the kids are going to gravitate gravitate towards. The only question I have is his prowess on the West Coast um, because he's from he, he grew up in the Midwest, but. Uh, Obviously, he's coached a ton in the South, in the SEC. So, I mean, I feel like that's where a lot of his ties are. But when you recruit in the SEC, you're obviously recruiting nationally. So, but still, not a West Coast guy. So, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But again, I think it's a job where you can only really have success because of the resources at your disposal. But that ends my Coach's Corner segment, and that ends the show tonight. I uh, appreciate everybody who tunes in, uh, takes time out of your day to listen to to uh, the show. And uh, feel free to follow me personally at Coach underscore B Will. Um, and please, please, please follow the podcast Twitter account at TNT College Foot One. Always putting new content out daily. Uh, trying to ask a lot of questions entering the season, different polls and different discussions that I'm just uh, trying to get discussions from everybody else. And of course, please keep those questions coming weekly. Love those. Um, please feel free, follow, subscribe to the podcast, um, where you listen to them. Uh, a lot of mine are through Spotify and anchor. Um, and if you feel the, if you feel urged to, you can donate to the show, uh, to support my journeys. Again, the whole basis of, me starting this is to attend a home game at every FBS stadium. Um, so if, if you feel compelled to do that, please do. You can also hit up the podcast merchandise store. Uh, the link's in the bio of the Twitter account at TNT College Foot One. Uh, so if you feel compelled to do that as well, feel free. But again, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Have a good night. God bless.